I'm Bill Moyers. It's good to have your ear. This week on Moyers and Company, I'm talking with Lawrence Lessig and Zephyr Teachout. John Roberts gets it so deeply wrong in his understanding of history, and he gets it so deeply wrong in a way that has really hurt us because he keeps striking down campaign finance laws. Um, so it's, it's bad history, it's bad law, it's bad, it's bad policy. I actually think this debate in the Supreme Court is not over. This is not a Democratic issue. This is not a Republican issue. This is an American issue. This corruption is an American issue. And we can find a way to not, to not separate us from you know, people that we recognize, but, a, but instead to unite us against a fight that nobody on the merits can defend. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Like many of you, I've been watching Congress since the midterm elections, and what I've seen has me thinking of King Louis XVI of France. His Majesty was a good friend of the American Revolution. But when he gave Benjamin Franklin a gold snuff box with the monarch's portrait surrounded with diamonds, some of our founding fathers objected. They worried that the gift would corrupt his judgment and unduly bias Franklin in France's favor. Ever since, we Americans have been debating the meaning of corruption. Today, gifts to politicians that were once called graft or bribes are called contributions. And the Supreme Court has ruled that powerful corporations and rich individuals can give just about anything they want to politicians who do their bidding. And it's not considered corruption. The Watchdog Sunlight Foundation reports that from 2007 to 2012, 200 corporations spent almost $6 billion for lobbying and campaign contributions and received more than $4 trillion, that's $4 trillion, in government contracts and other forms of assistance. Now, that's why K Street in Washington is the road to paradise for lobbyists. But it's a road that runs in both directions. NPR's Peter Overby talked with political scientist David Primo, The conventional wisdom out there is that businesses are going to Washington, writing checks and expecting big returns. But the other side of the story is that members of Congress may implicitly uh, threaten businesses that if they don't change their policy or if they're not heavily involved in the political process, uh, that bad things might happen to them. Now, partisans of the system say this is just business as usual, which, of course, it is. And that's the problem, as we're about to see with the newly elected Congress. Once upon a time, the GOP stood for Grand Old Party. Now it stands for Guardians of Privilege. And this is payback time for everything from fracking to getting the big banks off the hook. And that's just for starters. Democrats, meanwhile, are so compromised by their own addiction to big money, they have forgotten their history as champions of the working stiff, the little folks down there at the bottom. And that's why the great problems facing everyday people in America are not being seriously addressed by a political class afraid to offend the people who write the checks. That's why we asked Larry Lessig and Zephyr Teachout to return to talk further about corruption, a subject both have studied as scholars and are fighting against as reformers. Zephyr Teachout teaches at Fordham Law School and ran for governor of New York trying to rouse the public against corruption in our state government. She got more than a third of the vote in the Democratic primary. She's also the author of this acclaimed book, Corruption in America, 
from Benjamin Franklin's Snuffbox to Citizens United. Larry Lessig teaches at Harvard Law School and made his reputation as an expert on Internet law. He started the May Day Super PAC, raising millions for congressional candidates who vowed to fight the corrupting influence of money in politics. All but two of them lost. But the fight continues. Welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Chief Justice John Roberts takes a different view of corruption from the two of you. He says, quote, any regulation must instead target what we've called quid pro quo corruption or its appearance, the notion of a direct exchange of an official act for money. Well, at the um, Constitutional Convention, the, the primary topic was corruption. The framers are sitting there in Philadelphia trying to figure out how to build the structures to allow this new country. And their, their real obsession was how do we, you know, we've seen what's happened in England, we've seen what's happened in world history. How do we protect against basically big money taking over representative democracy? And when they talked about corruption, they weren't talking about criminal bribery, bags of cash. They were talking about when public servants serve their own ends, the selfish ends, or ends of, you know, a wealthy sponsor. Um, Using the public uh, power to benefit private private interests. And you know what? That's what people on the street think now, too. When you talk about the corruption in Congress, people are talking about the same thing that Madison was talking about, this this sense that our, our public servants are just serving themselves. They're running away with the resources of our country or serving their donors. And uh, John Roberts gets it so deeply wrong in his understanding of history, and he gets it so deeply wrong in a way that has really hurt us because he keeps striking down campaign finance laws. Um, so it's, it's bad history, it's bad law, it's bad, it's bad policy. And I believe that one of the things we need to remember as reformers is that this fight against big money is a long fight. It never ends. It's always going to be a struggle. Um, but that's what we were founded on, and we should honor that. You write and talk about systemic and systematic corruption. Give me a working definition of that. Well, you know, Madison created, when he helped craft the Congress, a system which he said would be, quote, dependent on the people alone. And he was quite explicit about who the people were. He said, the people are, quote, not the rich more than the poor. We have corrupted that dynamic. There's no doubt about that in the way we speak, in the way our framers speak. And I actually think this debate in the Supreme Court is not over because one of the arguments that's not yet been pressed against them firmly enough is for those conservatives who go around talking about the importance of original understanding and talking about what the framers meant when they used their words We now have the document, the work. Zephyr's book is incredibly powerful about this. To establish that those framers would have understood this concept in a way that could see the corruption in the system as plainly as they would see it anywhere. And so when we look at the systematic way in which our representatives are responsive not to the people alone, but increasingly to the funders exclusively, then that is an obvious corruption that they ought to be able to respond to. Now look, the Supreme Court gave us Citizens United. I think it's the greatest gift this movement has had. How you know, so? Because just like Roe versus Wade motivated the pro-life movement, so too this 
has excited an incredible cross-partisan movement of people who finally recognize the corruption of the system. So we will rally that movement, and I think the court's eventually going to get it right and allow Congress to at least end that systemic corruption. But how do you get the court, the Supreme Court, which has ruled consistently on this issue now, to reconsider its principle? Look, the court has said again and again, it's not Congress's job to silence people. Now, I don't think that's a fair characterization of what Congress is trying to do. But anyway, that's what they are targeting. That's why they say it's free speech. Yeah. But what we're talking about when we talk about small dollar public funding is not silencing anybody. It's about giving a wider opportunity of people to speak. It's about recognizing not the need for equality in speech, but equality in citizenship. We all ought to be equal citizens in this process of selecting our representatives. So, you know, what were they protesting about in Hong Kong? They were protesting a a system, a two-stage democracy, where in the first stage, a tiny, tiny group will select the candidates who the rest of Hong Kong get to vote for. A tiny group, 0.024% of that population. Well, that is our democracy, too, because we've got a system where a tiny, tiny fraction of America picks the candidates who get to run by funding their campaigns. The relevant funders of campaigns are no more than the number of people proportionally, that we're picking the candidates in Hong Kong. You you call that the wealth primary, where the donors can really actually decide who's going to run. You call it the wealth primary, we could call it the green primary. The point is, it's a system that excludes a vast majority of people from participating equally in this critical stage of the election. That is a violation of the framers' conception of our democracy. But even if you had raised public money, even if you had that statute in place, the big donors would still have been given the big megaphone. If we had in New York State the public financing system that I'd like to see in every state, I, first of all, I would have raised at least $4 million. Instead of? Instead of around 800000 most of which came in the last two weeks. I could have gotten on TV. I, I got a third of the vote with, with no television, no mail. And most importantly, there's an odd dynamic where the press will only take you seriously as a candidate once you've raised a certain amount of money. And by far the most important um, intermediary is still the press. The press still makes a bigger difference than, um, than the, the well, fundraising itself. Separate the press, the journalist, from the tsunami of ads yeah. out there. There were so many ads that some stations could no longer carry them, and the, and the parties had to go out to little small stations just to spend the money to run the ads. Mm-hmm. And I saw ad after ad for your opponent here, none from you. So it's not just the journalist. It's not just the journalist, but I actually think it's, it's, it's really important because one of the things that public financing does is it allows and gives permission in some ways for uh, media to actually cover a contest of ideas instead of doing what they do nowadays. I talk to journalists who say, I can't cover you because you have so little money. But if you have a public financing system, they can at least cover the fight. And I think that's so important. I mean, I, I think... I certainly agree with you on Hong Kong and the wealth primary and how people feel the wealth primary. They feel like they're not getting a choice between people who represent them. They're getting a choice between people who represent donors. And it's hard to engage and excite people on that. But, but I tend to think that this court sort of deep down is motivated by a vision, a non-democratic or distrust of democracy. There's an old corporatist idea that was part of the early 20th century where there are people who are actively advocating, saying, I think our corporate leaders should be our our leaders and work hand-in-hand with elected officials because they're good managers. They've been selected through the the fight of the market. I I happen to think that idea is um, crazy and not sustainable, 
but it was a, a true ideology. And I see some of that in our current Supreme Court as well. Are we close to plutocracy where government runs, is run by the rich? Yes. For the advantage of rich? Yes. But, you know, here's the way I want to push back on that. It makes it sound like it works for them, too. You know, it works for them on some issues. Mm-hmm. But the point is, when they look at a system which, you know, they pretty much agree is broken in a thousand different ways, they, too, can begin to recognize why this is a terrible system. When we would get super large, rich people giving us money to make it so they had less political power in the system, it wasn't because they were trying to show off. It's because they genuinely believe that this system is broken and they believe one way to fix it is to make it so they don't have so much power. Do you agree with him on this, the, 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 the fact that, that you can tame it, you can, you can regulate it with laws when you have a legislature like we have in Albany and a governor who has no interest in diminishing his power, as Larry says? Yes, we can. Uh, again, that doesn't mean that, we, that it's easy or that it's simple or we know the exact route. I mean, I look at William Jennings Bryant. Bryant ran for president again and again. And he came out of a populist movement that had been demanding a change in the way that we do campaigns down with monopolies in the 1880s and the 1890s. Maybe in 1894 or 95, they should have just given up. Because if you looked at the structures of power at that moment, you would say, I don't see a path. Well, that's, when I say we're at a moment like that, I think we have to call on the best parts of our American history when we have actually overcome seemingly impossible things um, and say things that aren't possible if we just follow a straight power map are, are going to be possible because we can tap into the, American, the great American tradition of organizing, of um, of actually speaking out of dissent. Uh, this is a different form of dissent because it's dissent against this plutocracy. And I think, um, I think there are a lot of people, I, unlike you, I think there are some people who just do benefit. But I think there are a lot of uh, people in, um, who, who might sort of falsely align themselves with the current system but are not benefiting because it's shutting down our marketplace. Yeah, but, but my, my point is, when you talk about it as if it's a fight between the rich and the rest of America, in fact, there's a whole bunch of the rich who don't act benefit um, or don't feel like they benefit or don't identify with it. And I, and I actually think it would be more uh, effective to frame this not as the fight between the 1% and the 99%, but the fight mm. between you know, American citizens and those who would corrupt the American democracy. Because, you know, I, I was meeting with the most powerful Republican in New Hampshire. And he said to me, you know, this is not a Democratic issue. This is not a Republican issue. This is an American issue. This corruption is an American issue. And we can find a way to not, to not separate us from, you know, people that we recognize, but, uh, but instead to unite us against a fight that nobody on the merits can defend. I know you think that this present campaign system works against competition, not only in politics, but in the economy. Yes, and I actually think this is really important, because I found on the campaign trail that when I would talk about the growing, basically too much power being held in the hands of too few in the economy and in politics, people really respond to that. They're experiencing it in not having a lot of options for places to go for a job, and, and I found once you got into a room, people may not know the language of antitrust. They may not know the language of anti-monopoly because it's actually 
vanished from our political vo- vocabulary since the early 80s. But it's a, it's a deep part of the American tradition. But the experience of, say, um, you know, big cable having political power and market power Time Warner in New York State. People know that Time Warner isn't in a competitive industry and has too much political power. That was really resonant. And I found that when I talked about those together with campaign finance, that actually could move people to a sense of, oh, we can have a different system. I think we need to fix both. I think we need to fix the way that we uh, fund campaigns. And I think we need to remember and revive antitrust and break up these companies that are playing sort of governmental roles. But this, but this, is, a, this is a perfect example of the way this issue is not partisan, right? Because you take Luigi Zingales, who is a libertarian, conservative economist on the University of Chicago Business School faculty. Yeah. He writes this fantastic book, uh, co-authored this book, Saving Capitalism from the Capitalists. And his whole point is that we need a theory of antitrust that recognizes that the problem is not just whether a company is too big, it's also whether the company would therefore be too politically powerful. Because what capitalists do is they win in a competitive market and then they turn to government so that they can get the rules changed so that government protects them from the next generation of capitalists. And a principled person on the right is as animated by the things that Zephyr is talking about, about the way in which uh, the current system is favoring the incumbents and blocking competition as people on the left. And if we begin to talk about it in this principled way, we can cut through the insider game, which is all about sucking up to those who are in power right now and make it possible to change those rules. But how do you get the country talking about that? when the mass media, the corporate media, is owned by the very uh, giants that you are talking about. It's actually very funny because, you know, if I go on uh, MSNBC to talk about Comcast, uh, I'm basically talking about the boss of MSNBC. (laughs) (laughs) So it's a very, very real issue. Um, But I know know how to start. To to start, I mean, uh, Gandhi's autobiography says, first tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Now start, what happens if you tell the truth is really the question. And I feel like first, first trying in the electoral life, you know, in running for office to, um, to tell the truth about what I see in the world and to ask that other people tell the truth. And what I see is this incredible concentration. I think extraordinary things can happen there. I, I see uh, with, in, just in this last summer, the response to Amazon the response to Comcast Time Warner, there's a real chance that Comcast Time Warner merger will be stopped. And then if you combine that with the number of Americans who want to break up the big banks, you suddenly see this isn't about the individual sectors of Amazon abusing its power, Comcast abusing its power, and J.P. Morgan abusing its power. It's we are in a new anti-monopoly moment. And uh, I will tell you that politicians who take that up and speak that to people are going to find unusual success like I did. But the, other, but the other thing about this is that, you know, we get fixed on the model of media from, you know, the middle of the 20th century. And the reality is that the model of media is increasingly becoming media at the beginning of the century, right? Before broadcasting, we are increasingly moving, not from a place where 
60% of America watches one of three shows every night to get the news. To a, but instead to a world where everybody is getting news from a thousand different sources. And the generation that we, we really need to mobilize, the generation under the age of 35, is not paying attention to the media that you know, you're talking about. They're paying attention to the rest of it. So what do each of you plan to do next? Well, I know that I would love to run for office again. In the meantime, I want to um, hopefully, I'm particularly focused on getting more people to run for office along with me. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was pretty lonely out there. <laughs> um, so I, I'd like to see a lot more women run with this antitrust message, a lot more young people run. And we know that people don't run because they're not asked. And we also know that they have a sense of like, that's a politician. A politician yeah. looks like this. A politician has never had trouble with student debt or credit card debt. And I want to say that we are in a moment where if we keep having the cookie cutter uh, you know, Manchurian candidate type politician, you're going to see even more and more young people drop out. And so I think we should forget the, the perfect resume and instead engage people who come from all different backgrounds, including the arts, and get them to run for office. Because this is what the kids in Hong Kong are fighting for. And we got to take the opportunity we have before it, it totally shuts down. So we want to take, you know, the incredible number of people that were supporting May Day and turn them into brigades that go out and start recruiting more and more Congress people to the idea of fundamental reform, like that use the technology of the internet to reach out to other voters and get those voters to talk to their Congress people and say to their Congress people, we need you to stand up for a change. Now, this is a way to kind of leverage the power that we aggregated with money into power with people. And ultimately, I think that that's going to be the much more effective way to begin to convert members of Congress, to get it close to a place where we could actually have a majority to pass the statutes we think we can pass. Larry Lessig, Zephyr Teachout, thank you for being with me. Thank, thank you. you. At our website, BillMoyers.com, find out what you can do to help drive money out of politics. That's all at BillMoyers.com. I'll see you there, and I'll see you here next time. Moyers & Company is produced by Public Affairs Television. You can learn more about the team that collaborates to produce the series at BillMoyers.com. Funding is provided by Ann Gumowitz, encouraging the renewal of democracy. Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security at Carnegie.org. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. The Herb Alpert Foundation, supporting organizations whose mission is to promote compassion and creativity in our society. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, Committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at macfound.org. Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The Kohlberg Foundation, Barbara G. Fleischman. And by our sole corporate sponsor, Mutual of America. Designing customized individual and group retirement products. That's why we're your retirement company.